Coming up on Tech Nation, I speak with R.J. Andrews about his book, Info We Trust, How to Inspire the World with Data. It's not just about consuming information. It's also about trust and the nature of being human. Then on Tech Nation Health, moving cancer treatments from the most common method, infusions, to pills, and why it requires some real innovation. I speak with Ali Fateh, the CEO of Curus, and Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about circadian medicine. Paying attention to your circadian rhythm turns out to be important, even in modern healthcare. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Pencil and paper. Oh no, pen and paper. That's how I think we should all wait for it. Vote. Look, we know about the Russians using social media to intervene in the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. And more recently, with the midterm elections coming, we hear that Russians, or some other entity, if you don't want to think it's the Russians, have access to and can change voting totals in a number of counties throughout the United States. What's that old line? Fool me once, that's your fault. Fool me twice, that's mine. From my perspective, the use of social media to affect opinion is serious enough, but I'm genuinely concerned when it comes to any intervention with the voting totals themselves. In recent years, once a vote count entered a computer, whether a simple spreadsheet to an AI platform database in the cloud, well, that data was vulnerable, and still is, which sends me back to pen and paper. How do you think America counted its votes for the first century and a half? We know how to do this, and it can be made even more trustworthy. Let's start with that moment of trust. I mark, with a pen, a single vote on a ballot. Today I go over to a machine that looks like an oversized fax machine and feed the paper sheets in one by one. Then I hand my actual paper sheets to the polling person. And those pieces of paper are the last place I know for sure that my vote was correctly counted. But those super fax machines, they scan my votes and start toting them up with all the others. Or I guess they do. I have to trust that these digital votes wind their electronic way up to the San Francisco Department of Elections and then on to the state or the nation or wherever they go, which brings me back to pen and paper. No digital technology solution is as trustworthy as hand counting, with one person watching another, another checking, and so on. That many people can't all be bought, and more are trustworthy than not. Now I realize that this is labor-intensive, but there are plenty of Americans happy to pitch in. And we only need to do this for important elections, like the president and senators and representatives. So here's the plan. Or at least one plan. Step one, cast your vote with pen on paper. 
and it could be in triplicate. We used to do that all the time. The first page could be white, the second blue, and the third, say, goldenrod. That's sort of a yellow-orange, which used to be popular when we did those things. Now step two. Separate the sheets and feed one into a white machine, one into a blue machine, and one into goldenrod. Not for counting votes, but to make sure the votes on each match. If not, correct it and try again. Step three, send the white, blue, and goldenrod packets of paper to white, blue, and goldenrod vote counters, each counting manually. The totals don't match, go back and do it again, or figure out the problem. Multiple entries, multiple checkers. Why do you think people literally had to steal ballot boxes in the old days? Reversing the words of Michelle Obama, when they go high, we go low. We take the technology out of their hands so they can't steal our elections. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, ever heard of a data storyteller? I speak with R.J. Andrews, the author of Info We Trust, How to Inspire the World with Data. Then on Tech Nation Health, moving cancer treatments from infusions to pills. And chief correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about circadian medicine, paying attention to our circadian rhythms. R.J. Andrews is a data storyteller, an engineer, and an artist. While we live in the information age, his book is not just about information. It's also about trust. I thought we would start there. For humans, what is trust? So trust is this uh, really incredible glue that holds us together as a people, as a society. And it's this belief in one another without necessarily having all the evidence. And the reason it's so important is because we can't know it all, right? If we each individually had to know it all, then we would have never gotten out of the Bronze Age. And so we need to have trust in one another in order to do some of the phenomenally complicated and complex uh, things that we do as a society. And it's essentially human. It's not a new thing. You trace down just very quickly in the opening the different forms of language through the ages, which has become trust. And it's, it's present everywhere, although it means sort of different things as we go along. The beginning of the book starts off talking about this proto-Indo-European word, which is drew. And uh, drew or pronounced deru is this very ancient word that it's so old, we can only really see its shadow 
in later languages. And what's really interesting about this word drew is it means tree. And you start with a physical object, the tree, and it has a sound drew. And then you start tracing it through language. And soon the tree's qualities, which are its hardness, the strength of the wood, sort of become social qualities. So we talk about social strength. Um, just by the term itself. Just, just the, with that same word. In different languages. In, yeah. in different languages. And so we can see this drew sound in words like dryad, a tree nymph, or a druid, you know, like the trees here, right? And then eventually this sound goes through Greek, it goes into Old Norse languages, it goes to Old Germanic languages, and we finally get the word trust. And there's lots of steps along the way, but from tree, then you have social strength, then you get fidelity, and finally you get trust. You can link this quality, this social invisible thing, which we can't see, but is so important to something we can see, the tree. And it means everything today. <laughs> uh, trust is a critical uh, quality to civilization, yes. And just while we're on the subject, information, that word has its own linguistic heritage. Yes. So I love making information. I love making especially data-driven information. So you think of maps, charts, diagrams, you know, things you can see, things you can hold. But you know, what's really special about information isn't necessarily the object. It's the informing that the information makes possible. That's what's exciting. And so when you're thinking about informing, what are you doing? So you're putting something in formation, right? You're arranging things in a particular way that makes it meaningful to the audience, to the reader, to the viewer. I like to say information is data in context. You're creating the context to view this data, which becomes information. That same data can be viewed in another way to create different information. So you yes. have to have sort of this higher level framework to really draw data into information for humans. Yes, there's so many different ways to think about context. One is just by comparison. You know, wh why don't we ever uh, hear the word datum? you know, the singular of data. It's because one piece of data, the datum, doesn't matter. A lonely number is irrelevant. A number only becomes relevant once we have something to compare it to. Now, sometimes when we make information, we provide the comparison. We say, here's a big number, here's a small number, aha. But sometimes we just give a single number knowing that the audience is bringing the other half of the comparison. You know, you create a lot of drawings, infographics, all of all of these kinds of things. And it'd be easy to say, well, you're just a, an infographic creator. But you describe yourself as a digital storyteller. What's the difference? So I think that when we think about storytelling, especially data storytelling, it's easy to get lost in uh, narrative discourse, right? Conflict climax, resolution, and that's certainly part of storytelling. But when I think about stories, I don't think just about narrative discourse. I also think about the story that each of us is running in our mind. And so when I think about informing, then I think about how do I impact the story running in each of my viewers' mind? You know, it's very easy as a technologist, as an engineer, to just think about the data because data in some, in some sense it's complicated, but not complex, right? 
You can break it down, you can understand it, you can analyze it. But once you throw the human mind into the equation, it becomes complex. There's so many relationships. And so I like using the word story and storytelling because it focuses us on that complex relation, the complexity of the human mind. And it focuses on not just the information, uh, which is complicated, but also the informing. And it focuses us on the viewer, on the reader. And so it's like, what is the viewer going to see when the viewer sees this? And the viewer can be many people. That's right. Yeah. And you know that you have people coming to your work, to your data story with a wide range of contexts, right? A wide range of prior knowledge. Um, and you have to give them access points, hooks, so that, so that the piece first uh, catches their attention, right? Because any sort of um, learning or any other sort of, you know, higher level, you know, sophistication that can come from an information product is all a byproduct first of attention. It has to, they have to detect it. They have to see something in it and say, hey, this is um, worth uh, my time to engage in. And in order to do that for a wide audience, you need to provide a wide, uh, you know, array of opportunities for different people to, to hook into it. And in truth, this is more than just numbers and with associations you can lay down in a in a tablet. I mean, a, a very early in your book, you use this sort of simple data story. I mean, uh, medieval knights known for their headwear, their helmets, you know, throughout the throughout a, a number of centuries. Um, and you decide you're going to depict this in the progression of helmets, which just isn't a line of helmets, mm. but in fact has a has some body to it, has some two dimensionality to it about how they how they you inherit one helmet from the next. Let's talk about that as uh, how you find the seed for this and how you draw the draw this infographic. Sure. So um, this isn't a statistical chart, meaning that it's not powered by numbers and you wouldn't be able to take um, the average or find the median or the mode of this um, particular um, body of data. Um, however, it's more than just an illustration because what you have is uh, an evolutionary tree that branches out and shows um, uh, several dozen different medieval European helmets. And what's so neat is, as you mentioned, the, their placement shows how certain helmets look similar to one another. And so you can chart and you can see the evolution from one helmet to the next. And so the context in this um, in this picture is not only their placement up the tree so you can see what date the helmet came from, but also the context of what helmets are near it and what helmets are similar to it, what did it look like, and then you can start asking questions like, well, why did it evolve in this particular way? Um, and, and this illustration is actually a very old illustration. It's one that I redrew from uh, the um, Metropolitan Museum of Arts, uh, first arms and armor curator, Bashford Dean. And so he um, he, his background was actually, he was a Columbia pro, uh, professor. He's, their, I believe, their first evolutionary biology professor. And so he brought that, you know, everybody was crazy about um, Darwinism, right, at the end of the 19th century. So he brought that energy into the study of arms and armor. And you had this sort of clash, you know, and this fusing and overlap of, of, um, of these different fields. 
You might as well call this one helmet leads to another. <laughs> and as another parallel, if you will, you're right. It's like, why did one thing, we always have incremental change. Some people call it small innovations, but they're incremental change. It would be interesting to layer on top of that. How did the weapons change? How did the strength of the metal change? How did the ability to create these things change? So the technology got better. I suppose over decades, better, faster, cheaper. (laughs) You know, it's like, so there are layers of information in there. Yeah. Not only, um, was was the were the helmets changing because of new material science you know n- new metallurgy were the helmets changing because of fashion were the helmets changing because of influences we can't see in this illustration because there was an already an an incredible uh, global trade network, and they were learning things from Asia, right? Um, did the helmets change? Um, let's see, we have fashion, metallurgy, outside influences, or did they change because of a few centralized armorers, right? And you know, and power with powerful um, kings, or were the individual knights kind of tinkering with their with their helmets and making small little modifications? Um, you know, wh- why were all these changes happening? You know, it's it the the illustration sparks more questions. That's a good infographic Yes, <laughs> when it does that. And I do want to make a point that it's okay to take someone's, someone else's infographic and sort of redraw it in your own understanding that the source, where the source came from, you note that in the book where your source came from. Um, because once you start to make it your own, and as you see, you have more questions, then you can go on to your next question and you maybe find some more data to fold in and create your next infographic. You don't have to start from zero every time, get some new data and just create. And I think we're just finally at a time where we can do that. Yes. Um, I've had great fun remaking um data stories, infographics, charts from across this field's rich 400-year history. And one of the things that remaking um, these information products has taught me, whether I'm remaking it directly or I'm um, adopting the style from a previous age, is all of the design decisions that the person made when they were creating the original product. And you it's very hard to access those design decisions until you actually remake it because only then do you really get into the, the nitty-gritty. You can look at something and study it and critique it, but only when you're actually trying to recreate it in the same way, you know, sometimes even using the same tools, do you really understand what it was like um, to do that. I forget which author it was who um, retyped Great Gatsby. Do you know this story? No, I don't know so this story. So it was, it may have been Hunter S. Thompson, and I, I forget, well, maybe we can look it up. In but, a very long, sober period. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was Hunter S. Thompson, but he retyped a novel on a typewriter because he wanted to know what it felt like to write a great novel. <laughs> and so you get experiential yeah. of your own to bring to bear, not just other people's information. That's right. I was just telling somebody the other day, I said, oh, you want to write a book? You know, we got all this new stuff on, on Netflix, you know, amazing amount of stuff. Why don't you spend uh, your year in Netflix and watch every single one of them? <laughs> it was like the eyes were going back in the head. What do I do? How do I lay it out? I said, I don't know. 
It's like that woman who cooked everything in Julia Child's book. Yeah. There's a lot of this that says you bring you to what's going on and, and creativity will evolve. It'll emerge out of that. Yes. I think that, um, you know, you, you can think of creativity um, as mapping a new connection between two things that haven't been connected in the way that you're able to connect them. And so um, if you were to watch Netflix, you're going to be doing uh, a lot of consuming. And the question is sort of, what do you bring to that consuming experience? And then how can you, um, you know, with all the knowledge that you bring to that screen, um, how is that going to fire with what Netflix is sort of serving you and sort of what what product is going to emerge from from the spark between the Netflix screen and everything you bring to that viewing experience? You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. My guest today is R.J. Andrews, a data storyteller by trade. He's both an engineer and an artist, the recipient of data visualization awards from both Science Magazine and the Kantar Information is Beautiful Awards. He's here today with Info We Trust, How to Inspire the World with Data. Well, you did say this 400 years of infographics, where do you trace back the source? Oh, so the entire field is rooted in mapping, in geographic mapping. And mapping goes all the way not to, um, not to mapping the land, but to mapping the sky. And so if we go all the way back to some of the uh, French, French caves, right, like LSO, then what we see are um, constellations written on the cave walls. And so um, that might be, you know, kind of, uh, you know, that's as a good far, place to that's, start. I'll that's as that far there. back as we can, <laughs> as we as as we can go in terms of seeing sort of visual information. Data here, information there. <laughs> yeah. So we get a lot of um, a lot of our inspiration for mapping. So much so that um, Enlightenment thinkers, um, these polymath European guys, they would write about how they're trying to make some of the invisible parts of the world, such as time. Right, something we all experience, but it's very hard to actually see as visible and comprehensible as some of the vi- as uh, uh, as the visible parts of the world, such as geography. And so they wanted to um, t- see time like we could see land. And and so a lot of the early sort of uh, primitive charts um, were attempts at taking the tools from map making and applying them to invisible parts of our experience. I love that invisible parts of our experience, sometimes invisible to us as well. <laughs> yes. Well, the invisible parts are what is what matters because we're not the best navigators. We don't have the best eyesight. We're not the strongest animals out there. We're not the fastest. We're pretty good endurance runners, but really we're not the best at matter. At physical matter, uh, humanity's not the best. But what we are the best at is these invisible patterns. And the invisible patterns, the connections that we see between things is what creates meaning. And so we don't really spend most of our time thinking about physical things. We think about social things. We think about love. We think about money, right? We think about power. Like these are all the things that really consume all of our attention. And so wouldn't it be nice if we could start to see some of those things? Now, I'm not going step-by-step step through your entire book, <laughs> but, but there is something else that I wanted to talk about early on. I want listeners to appreciate the the idea that the data isn't just 
numbers around us in a database, on the cloud, accessible to you through Google, there's a lot of information around you, around all of us, that we can take in and comprehend. You give the example of James Brown and the Famous Flames and the recording of their famous record as well, live from the Apollo. Let's go there. So James Brown gave this concert in 1962 at the Apollo Theater in Harlem, and he didn't play any new songs. You know, the concert kind of came and went. Uh, at first, they didn't even want to press the album, but eventually they pressed the album, and lo and behold, huge success. And it was an important milestone in James Brown's career. It helped launch him to R&B superstardom. But looking back, you know, 1962, this is before the Beatles landed in the United States, right? This is a very important milestone in just um, music generally. And so we can now still go back to the Apollo and experience that concert. James Brown can still move our feet, right? And in some ways, that evening at the Apollo still can come forward to us. And when we think about data, because it is data, right? The, um, the first is that it's not a total rote experience. Listening to that album is not the same as being in the Apollo and that that evening, you know that that whole experience was compressed to this um, to this uh, auditory track and and thrown forward in time to us. And so that's the first thing about data is that somebody in the past chose what to preserve, and it wasn't the whole thing, but they made a decision and they pushed it forward to us. So there's sort of this time travel aspect to data that all data is somehow some faint shadow of what occurred previously. Now, I think that's the first lesson to learn from James Brown. The second lesson is that when we think about that concert, we don't think about the grooves in the record. We don't even think about the record, right? What do we think about? We think about the songs, the pattern, the music, the feeling that it creates in us. And so in storytelling, there's this term that Alfred Hitchcock popularized called the MacGuffin. And a MacGuffin in storytelling is this thing that doesn't like doesn't really matter, but helps the story move forward. So the most famous, you know, we're sitting here in San Francisco, the most famous is the Maltese Falcon, right? Everybody's chasing the Maltese Falcon through the film. Um, and before that, through the novel. Another famous MacGuffin is R2-D2, right? With the Death Star plans. Everybody's trying to get the Death Star plans. But again, the thing that you're chasing, the, the method of storage, the thumb drive that has the data on it, like that's how people think about data because it's so hard to see the pattern, but that's not what's important. What's important are the patterns within the data, the music. And so when we show data, when we show and create information, what we're trying to do is excite people to those patterns. We're trying so that they can hear the data sing. And don't be fooled by the technology. It's just enabling a whole lot of stuff that's going on there. And we sometimes meld the two. It's very easy, especially today, because we are in an age of information overload. It's not the first time we've been in an age of information overload, but um, but it's really... Oh, now that's a sentence there. It's not the first time we've been in a, an age of information overload? Oh, oh certainly not. So every, every time that we have a new means of capturing data, capturing information, um, then what you find is... A, uh, an inability to manage that information. And so um, uh, uh, maybe the most recent big one was the invented, invention of movable type printing press, right? All kinds of books come out, uh, not only all kinds of books, but literacy spikes, 
right? Now, all kinds of people who never had an opportunity to read have a reason to read, and so they learn how to read. They have access to all kinds of information. And so you have um, a spike in our ability to produce information. I've been speaking with R.J. Andrews, the author of Info We Trust, How to Inspire the World with Data. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, determined efforts to enable taking cancer treatments orally. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft reminds us about circadian rhythms. Stay with us. Tech Nation. I've been speaking with data storyteller R.J. Andrews. His book is Info We Trust, How to Inspire the World with Data. Every time that we have a new means of capturing data, capturing information, then what you find is an inability to manage that information. And so maybe the most recent big one was the invention of movable type printing press, right? All kinds of books come out. Uh, not only all kinds of books, but literacy spikes, right? Now, all kinds of people who never had an opportunity to read have a reason to read, and so they learn how to read. They have access to all kinds of information. And so you have a spike in our ability to produce information. You have in our ability to manage the information, you know, drops, you know, can't keep up. And then what happens? Well, then there's a drop in authority, Right, Because before you relied on authority to tell you, look over here, this is what's important, only three channels, we will tell you, you know, what reality is. And then with a spike in information, our management tools are, are no longer relevant, then that authority starts to crumble, which is exactly what we're seeing today. 
Same old, same old, hey? That's right. <laughs> well, just think about that. I read the book. What do you mean you're producing a lot of books? I have to read all the I can't possibly read all the books. And there is another side to this in that, as you say, you know, the, the human is part of it. The viewer is part of it. And we frequently say, put all this data together so that we can create an understanding of what's going on so people can actually see it. So that's about understanding. But I found, you have a lot of quotes in the book. I found inside a quote you have from E.O. Wilson, the brain is a machine assembled not to understand itself, but to survive. It throws a spotlight on those portions of the world it must know in order to live to the next day and surrenders the rest to darkness. So it's not like understanding for understanding itself. It's like, I need to survive. Yes. What's useful for survival beats truth, you know, and, 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 the, <laughs> you and the Darwinian sense uh, every time. And so there's this, um, there's this, you know, great anecdote of, you know, you, you hear a rustle in the grass, you know, say you're on the savanna, you're early man, and you hear, uh, you hear a rustle in the, in the grass. And the question is like, do you stick around and figure out whether or not it's a lion? Because if you're interested in truth, then you'd stick around and you'd look for the lion. And if you were interested in survival, you would run away every time as fast as you can. And guess what? Even if it was a lion only one out of a thousand times, those odds are enough to get you spit out of the gene pool really, really fast. And so we're wired for many things. And, you know, sort of the evolutionary, you know, psychology angle is just one angle, but it's one I think that we can use to start to appreciate what we're wired for. And we are indeed, as E.O. Wilson, you know, mentioned, wired for survival. Now, you have both undergraduate and graduate degrees in mechanical engineering. You have an MBA from MIT. You worked as an engineer and a defense contractor. You've actually been an engineering contract negotiator with the military. Mm -hmm. You took a right turn did an internship with a pharmaceutical company, Pfizer, major global firm. Mm -hmm. uh, then you went to work for the Duke Institute for Health Innovation before going on to being information we trust. Uh, let's stop off at that Duke Institute. What did you do there? What did you learn there? So I had a very special role within Duke Medicine at this institute, uh, DHI, Duke Institute for Health. And my job was to sort of go around the hospital, meet with doctors, see what they're doing, and provide them seed funding to develop their ideas. And mostly these were technology kind of data-fueled ideas. And then on top of that, some of those ideas I could take a very special interest in and actually uh, take part in developing those ideas. What's really important as I write the book and make other fun projects for kind of public consumption is that I stay tethered somehow to data projects that actually make a real measurable difference. So what you're saying is just keep trying to get as much experience as you can all the time in different fields, just going to inch over and uh, and challenge yourself in that way. Yes. I don't know if you want to go back to the mechanical engineering sure, tour of the rest. Yeah. So, you know, professionally, I'm anchored as an engineer. And what I learned from engineering you know, is in incredibly impactful in all the work I do today. Not only a ability to be technological, but also to have a certain rigor and discipline to do some of the work, because sometimes you just have to, you know, sit with a problem 
for many days or even weeks on end. And engineering gives you the discipline to know how to do that and to solve problems. But one thing I didn't like about working as a pure engineer is that I didn't feel like I got to flex my whole humanity, right? That I didn't get to be poetic you know, at the same time that I was being quantitative. And in particular, as an engineer, I realized working in the field that most problems had little to do with technology. Most problems had a lot to do with people. Now, let's go back to trust. You say, inspire trust, design for believing minds. Why not do it for everyone? Why just believing minds? Well, I think we all have believing minds. We, we all have to because we have to believe because we can't know it all, right? And once we acknowledge that we all have believing minds, I think that it, it encourages the information maker to be more empathic, to understand that people want to believe, that people actually have to believe, and that if they are not ready to believe in what you're serving them, that's okay. Sometimes it takes people a lot of time to marinate in new ideas. Sometimes it takes more than just the, the morsel, the nugget of ideas that you're giving them. They have to hear a lot more evidence before they can sort of swing to the side of the evidence, to the side of truth. And so as an information maker, it's possible to sort of get burned out and get disappointed that people, for example, aren't uh, understanding climate change data, right? But you have to take an attitude, and it's a generous attitude of patience, of understanding, and of being very um, generous of continually giving uh, a more clear view of how the world really is. You hope that when you create something that there are levels of meaning possible within the thing itself. But then there's this extraordinary potential that often you never even see, but you know can happen. And that is that the thing you create, that product, um, is going to hit different people in different ways. And content has a long tail, a really long tail. And so you don't know that 30 years from now, somebody can stumble into your radio interview and it can inspire them in a way that you could never predict or expect. And that whole sort of unknown is very exciting. And your infographic, hey, 30 years from now, somebody's going to find. Absolutely. I still have very strong memories of uh, laying on my bedroom floor, you know, five or six years old, turning the pages of Zoo Books magazine, right? And looking at these infographics. And I've since now, decades later, right, as an author, gone and figured out who made those things. I've gotten in touch with them. I've thanked them. And of course, they're delighted and they're surprised to know that so many decades later, their work is still resonating and still inspiring in unexpected ways they could have never predicted. RJ, such a pleasure. I hope you come back and see us. Thank you so much. My guest today is RJ Andrews. His book is Info We Trust, How to Inspire the World with Data. It's published by Wiley. More information about the kind of work that RJ does can be found at infowetrust.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today on Tech Nation Health, moving cancer treatments from infusions to pills. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about circadian medicine. 
Normally, when we talk about cancer treatments, we're talking about infusions, which take some time to administer. Curis is working on cancer treatments, which can be taken orally, in a pill. I asked Ali Fateh, the CEO of Curis, how is that possible? Actually, everything that we work on at Curis, the drugs that we try to develop are, in fact, oral drugs. And uh, we intentionally do that because it makes it much more convenient for the patients. And then secondly, from a cost perspective, we do think that manufacturing the small molecule, as we refer to them, oral drugs, are, in fact, quite a bit simpler. And they can be mass-produced and hopefully much more available uh, as well. That's really great, but aren't all these cancer drugs big, large molecules that can't be made into pills? Um, For some of them, that is still potentially possible. Our efforts is try to figure out any of the places for cancer treatment that we try to intervene, if we can actually generate an oral drug in a pill form uh, that we can administer it for the patients, especially for their convenience. And in many of those cases, uh, we have been able to do that. And we have those pill form of the drugs, in fact, in clinical testing now in patients, uh, and they seem to have good benefits for them as well. Now, if I look at a really large molecule, a typical one that would be a cancer treatment, it's just huge. It's just huge, uh, relatively speaking, in, in molecule terms. And when I look at the patents on them, the active ingredients that have been patented, it's only little bitty parts of those. If you just took those and put them together, they might be small enough to make into a pill. Is that one approach? Um, that's a very difficult approach. And the reason that may not work or not be as successful, as you pointed out, these are small parts of the large molecules, uh, which are the parts that in fact do the work, do need a fairly large scaffold, uh, if you will, with them to hold those in the right places. Uh, So taking those little small parts of them and trying to imagine putting those together then makes it from a three-dimensional perspective not be in the right places. And that was, that's what makes it You can do it, but difficult. it won't work. That's probably the case. <laughs> so how do you do it? We actually take a different approach. We look at, um, again, also uh, the three-dimensional structure of what it is that we're trying to intervene with. For example, thinking about a cancer cell, what is on the surface of a cancer cell, which is what we want to target. Uh, We can now, in fact, look at the three-dimensional structure of those proteins on the surface of the cancer cells, and then using computer-aided discovery approaches, uh, design actual chemical structures, and these are the same chemical compounds that can actually bind to those same proteins on the surface of the cancer cells and then alleviate the need for making a large molecule in this regard. So the reason they call it biopharma is that they are biological molecules which are being infused into cancer patients. And you're saying if we can find a chemistry, a chemical that we can construct then these small chemical entities we can make into pills. They might do the same things. One's a biological, one's a chemical, but you're saying, but if we can do chemistry, then we get all the advantages of a pill. That is correct. That's exactly correct. In a sense, thinking about it as a chemical, that's the pharma part that has very strong biological activity, which is, in our case, an anti-cancer activity. Uh, And we've been successful. Many of the anti-cancer drugs that we use now are in a pill form, orally available, and they're manufactured as a chemical. Now, when you say many, 
we hear time after time after time of these infusions. Why are so many people uh, still going to infusion centers for their treatments? And so cancer, of course, has many different um, causes. And in fact, the genetic causes provides us areas to intervene and target. Some of those areas where we want to intervene are just very difficult to try and address with a chemical structure, either because of the size of the chemical structure or the way that they naturally work, in which case then a biological approach, for example, with an antibody a biological drug may work better. We tried all the different approaches. We think about them as biologic modalities, uh, chemical pill form drug modalities, and obviously more recently thinking about gene therapy modalities. It really depends on the step in the cancer formation that we want to intervene with, which of these modalities may be the best one. Uh, Nine times out of 10, if we can do it with an oral pill form, we want to go that direction. Now, whether it's a pill or it's a large molecule that has to be infused, you still have to go through all the phases at the FDA testing them. I know that one of your pills is in a phase one study here in the U.S., and yet it's in a phase two study in India. Did you start earlier? Why are you in India? Yeah, it's a good question. We have a number of drugs that we have in clinical testing. The one that you refer to, it is correct. We have that in the U.S. in phase one uh, or the early dose finding uh, testing that FDA allowed us to do in patients here in the U.S. in cancer patients. Um, This particular drug is an oral form of the thing that has now only been addressed with biologics uh, and it's in the field of a very popular field of cancer immunotherapy, which is activating our own immune system them, in fact, to attack the cancer. The reason we went to India is really for access to patients that haven't previously been treated with these type of drugs. It's it's such a hot field currently in the U.S., um, more than 1,000, in fact, more than 2,000 different trials are looking for patients that haven't been treated with these types of drugs to test new approaches to cancer treatment. India is a very large country. Uh, These drugs as biological form are not available in India, which means it's a large population of cancer patients that have never been treated with cancer immunotherapy. And it affords us the opportunity to actually be able to enroll patients. In the U.S. right now, and especially for cancer immunotherapy, competition for patients is very high. Therefore, we do look, in this case, more globally, where are the geographies that these drugs are not available for patients. Therefore, we have the opportunity to try and test our drugs and uh, figure out whether they provide anything additional or other advantages for patients. And we won't see if there are any complications which had been created by using the earlier drugs. Um, That is exactly correct. That cancer clinical trials or any clinical trial is really an experiment. It's an experiment that we want to do in patients for testing our drug. Of course, they've been tested quite heavily before they go into patients to make sure there are no major uh, toxic effects associated with them. However, just like any experiment, we want to make it as clean or controlled as possible. If a patient has been treated with these types of drugs before, 
and they're now still a cancer patient, then it's less likely that they will be able to benefit from a similar type of a drug, even though in our case, it's in an oral pill form versus being an injectable biologic. I have two questions for you. First of all, does having it go through these phases ahead of the U.S. phase, does that inform the U.S. phase? Um, it does. Uh, we really do think about humans are humans no matter where they are. Um, as long as the clinical trials are done in a manner and the information is collected in a very controlled manner, uh, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration will accept that information uh, and it allows us to supplement information that we gain from trials in the United States to be able to potentially file for approval of a drug. Uh, the important thing is the quality of the information that we gain and the quality and the controlled nature of the clinical trials that we conduct. Um, a lot of the parts of the world are now uh, recognizing this and uh, they have the ability to be able to allow us to do these trials uh, in patients in different parts of the world. Well, the second question is, here's India offered up its people, its people participated. Will it get this drug in India? It's an excellent point, and I think this is an important part. First and foremost, for any of us that are in the drug development world, and in particular for cancer, we want to make it available for patients all over the world, uh, not just uh, in the United States. We're also, in the case of Curis, fortunate to be partnered with a company in India whose mission is really to provide these same drugs to patients in India. Uh, they work with us in collaboration, and if these data uh, or this information from the trials are successful, we will use them for U.S. and other parts of the world, including Europe. Uh, and our partner company in India, whose name is Origin, uh, their intent and their mission is to, in fact, generate those drugs for patients in India and provide them to those patients as well. Well, thank you for coming in, Ali. I hope you come back. Keep us informed. Thank you very much, Mora, and look forward to it. Ellie Fateh is the CEO of Curis. More information is available at curis.com. That's C-U-R-I-S, curis.com. I think it was somewhere in college when we all started talking about our circadian rhythms. I asked our chief correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, remind me, what's that? What's your sign, baby? What's your yeah. sign? <laughs> are, are you in the groove? Groovy. I'm in the groove. Yeah. Groovy, man. Well, Life is a set of patterns, right? Our cells, our physiology, we all live in pretty much 24-hour cycles, but also seasonal cycles. And we're just starting to open this new realm of sort of circadian health and medicine and understand the implications of normal rhythms, you know, the daily 24-hour clock, sleep, wakes, light bulbs, alertness, and what happens when we start to mess with that, whether that's with international travel and jet lag, our computer screens and phones, you know, looking at them at midnight, uh, or what happens to folks who do late-night shifts or uh, eat at 2 in the morning. Lots of implications. It's a fascinating time to look at our, our rhythms. Well, certainly before we had all this technology, you know, you went 
pretty much you went to sleep with the dark and you woke up with the light. So that's the first thing that changed what was going on in, in a mass societal way. But now we have all our new technologies. We'll just leap forward. You know, we've got cell phones, we've got tablets, we've got computers, we've got television sets, we've got all of these things. Um, what's that doing? Does that mean we change our circadian rhythm or do we interfere with it? I think we're doing both. I mean, if you think back to our ancestors, not even that many generations back. I mean, we've only had electric lighting 150 years, Thomas Edison. But our ancestors, you know, they lived through the day-night cycles. You know, maybe they had candlelight, but their days very much shifted with the sun and they had natural lighting and they certainly weren't exposed to fluorescent light bulbs. Now in our modern era, yes, things are more fast-paced. We have artificial light. Many of us don't get outside as much and many of us are now addicted to our mobile devices and looking at Twitter and Facebook at 1130 before we go to bed. And new science and studies have shown that that definitely start to affect our circadian rhythm, how much melatonin we make, which affects how we sleep, our timing and our depth of sleep, our REM sleep, which is very important for developing memory and preventing everything from heart disease to depression. So we are messing with it and we're starting to understand it, however. One of the things that has changed with all this technology and sort of changing social patterns and the fact that you can order anything you want and have it delivered to your house at any time, apparently, right from your smartphone, is what time we eat and how much we eat and what we eat. is How is that affecting us? Well, we now have 24-7 lighting. <laughs> we also have 24-7 uh, you know, food access. And it's, it's fascinating how that the timing of when we eat uh, can dramatically impact health. So some fascinating work on circadian timing and diet has been done and pioneered by Professor Sachin Panda at the Salk Institute in San Diego. And they've studied, for example, mice, essentially identical mice. And one set of mice could eat whenever and whenever they wanted, so 24-7 access to food. Their sibling mice, who were genetically identical, could only eat 10 hours of the day. And while both sets of mice would eat essentially the same amount of calories, those mice that had restricted, they could only eat 10 hours of the day, had dramatically lower body weight and body fat. So they were much healthier when they could only eat in a certain window of the day. And that's now starting to translate to humans. You may have heard of intermittent fasting. When you go to bed at night, let's say 10 o'clock, you don't eat again until let's say noon the next day. So people are experimenting with this. And Dr. Panda's group also did a project, My Circadian clock.org was the platform for this, where people would report when they ate and how much they ate. And they studied the group that then shifted to not eating for 10-hour windows. And those folks reversed some of their diseases and had better numbers and more alertness and energy and reversals of some important biomarkers like blood pressure and, and cholesterol. And so, again, timing might be everything, including in our, our diets. So restricting maybe only to those times when it's light out <laughs> to match our great ancestors. That's when you eat. And then when it gets dark, you sleep or you can sleep a long time in the dark. You could still, it may improve you getting your eight hours of sleep because you haven't just involved a meal, which changes your cortisol and other levels. And there's some other simple things that Dr. Panda talks about that, that helps with sleep in general. Number one, not to eat for a couple hours before you go to bed, as we just talked about, to sleep in a cooler environment. We tend to sleep better and more efficiently in a cool room rather than a warm room to avoid those bright lights before bed. And there's now 
technologies now, most of our smartphones know after 10 o'clock to turn down the brightness and often change the timbre to be more like a blue light. Uh, and that is apparently effective in improving our sleep. So sometimes these simple little habits, which aren't hard to do, can improve our sleep physiology and our eating physiology and our health outcomes. Well, I was just reaching back into those early ancestors of mine and, you know, here they are and they're in the cave and they got the, you know, the animal skins over them. Nobody's going to get up and go over to the refrigerator and open it. <laughs> it's like they're going to have to take their food and make it with no access to animals that may be roaming around. It's like, yeah, it's like that's exactly where we were coming from. So. You're not, you're not going to get eaten by the lion for that 2 a.m. snack. Um, <laughs> you know, so. Now we have the ability, you know, with our wearables to study our sleep. I'm wearing, you know, an Apple Watch and a Fitbit. Both of those actually track my sleep pretty well. And I, I know. I insights. check you. Every time you come in, I say, what else does he have on his body? But okay, just two today. <laughs> just two today. But what's interesting about those, those can give not just me insights, but I'm starting to crowdsource my sleep data. And now companies like Fitbit and others have billions of hours of sleep and nights. And we're starting to learn what's normal sleep patterns, what happens as we age, and all that as we start to crowdsource it and understand it will hopefully help us help our sleep hygiene and figure out our circadian rhythms in new powerful ways. And it's not just for our health and our habits. It may be if we're taking a medication, a blood pressure medication, or even a flu vaccine, the time of day that you take that medication or get that vaccination may impact how well that drug works or that vaccination works. Our immune system follows different circadian rhythms as well in terms throughout of the day. throughout the day or potentially in different seasons. There's been studies to look at patients who have open heart surgery. They do better when they have the surgeries in the afternoon rather than early in the morning. So you might want to, if you have heart surgery and you get a choice, say, doc, I'd like it in the early afternoon as opposed to 6 a.m. Hopefully the surgeons are more awake as well, but also your physiology may be more attuned to a better outcome. So it's the early days of, of understanding circadian rhythms for health prevention and even for therapy. Right now, it sounds like we're just sort of watching outcomes to see, oh, it appears if we do this, the outcome is better. Can we measure circadian rhythms or is this really a description of how we operate, so the outside of, of being human? Well, there are different things that you can measure in terms of rhythms. It may be your brain waves. It could be your heart rate and your heart variability. It might be hormones that correlate through the circadian rhythm like cortisol and stress hormones. So there are a variety of ways to measure our circadian rhythms. And as we can now do that more seamlessly in our digital health environment, we'll be able to do these on the fly. We can all sort to contribute and even learn that we're not all the same. You know, we have different genetics of sleep. Some of us need six hours. Some of us need nine. Some of us may have different receptors in our eyes that makes us more prone to light exposure. Uh, some of the work by Sachin Panda was discovering a new molecule in the eye called uh, melanopsin, which is sort of, sort of wired to the master clock in our brain. And so if you learn to stimulate certain elements in our retina with a certain type of light, you may be able to reshape or shift your rhythms. So interesting time to start to measure and start to modify and do that in a more personalized, precise way as well. Well, you gave us a lot to think about today. I think I'll go to sleep tonight. And, I need a nap. Uh, <laughs> worry about it. <laughs> worry about it tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you, Moira. Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent of Tech Nation Health and the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn.
Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.